Thank you so much for that as we're now all sort of quietly sobbing to ourselves, right? That song is always the, uh, ooh, a little, it's a tricky one. So this is a platform about um, generations and generational theory about different life stages. And I wanted to start with one of the most important questions. What am I wearing? Specifically, are they tights or are they pants? <laughs> are they their leggings, right? They're leggings. Are they tights though or are they pants? Do leggings count as pants? Can you wear them with a regular shirt? Or are they really only appropriate in tights settings with a dress? Or are you sort of a bridger, right? It's like a tunic. It's not a shirt. It's not a dress. It's okay with leggings. Are leggings pants? One of the core questions of my generation and every generation. I think it's one of the, the questions I like because depending where you fall, you may have a very clear answer that you are sure is right. Of course, leggings are pants. They go on your legs. They cover your full set of legs from ankle to waist. That is the definition of pants. And you can wear them with whatever the heck you want to wear them with. Any kind of shirt you would wear, you could wear with leggings because they're pants. And then you might also be thinking, that's ridiculous. Leggings are basically like tights because they're tight. That's how you can tell, right? So you could wear them with whatever you would wear tights with. With dresses, maybe you'll let a longish tunic slide, but you can't wear leggings, right, with shirts, the short kind of shirts that you'd wear with other pants because they're not pants. That's really all I have to say. Are leggings pants? <laughs> Figure it out. <clears throat> The question is a good one because, as I said, we hold different answers and each of us perhaps are sure that our answer is the right one. When I think about generations at, at West, um, I think both about our life stages, the ages that we are at this time and will be in the future and were in the past, and also about the idea of generational theory. This platform was an auction platform. It was um, won at this past auction in, um, in October. Um, I th it's very dark, right? No, but all the lights are on. Okay, that's right. Um, it was won this past, um, this past October in the auction. Um, and the winner, Rachel Hardig, who will be here at the 1130 platform, wanted me to talk about generations and about what it means specifically to be part of a multi-generational community. When we talk about multi-generational community at West, we often mean our children and our adults, right? You know, like our multi-generational platforms when the children are upstairs with us for the whole platform. But the truth is that we have many adult generations represented at West as well. And that's what she asked me to focus on, the idea of adults of different generations. So I want to talk a little bit about generational theory, and I'm going to use the Strauss and Howe model as it's been interpreted by my colleague, Kimberly Debu. And I, um, I give a huge amount of credit to her. A lot of what I'll be sharing, particularly about the theory, the, the theory of this model comes from her work um, and how, as she applies it to congregational life. 
So a couple of disclaimers first, right? Any model is only a model. It's only a tool. It's a way to help us understand the world, and it will fit for some of us and not fit at all for others of us. There will be people who hear about what is supposed to be their generational cohort and say, that doesn't describe me in the least. I don't feel like I fit in that generation at all. The model's bunk, and it might be, or it could be that you just don't quite fit within that cohort, right? The other challenge with this model, with the Strauss and Howe model in particular, <clears throat> which is the prevailing one used in American context especially, it is written for the American context. So um, it uses Euro-American history to look at generational theory. Um, but there are also some real challenges with it, primarily that it is really focused mostly on the white and middle class experience and it partic in particular does not incorporate the experience of immigrants. So it, it makes broad generalizations about generational experiences in America because using American history um, and sociological studies, but it's a narrow experience. It may resonate more broadly than that, but, but I wanna just acknowledge that that's a flaw of the model, that folks are doing research now to try to create a broader and more applicable tool that, that speaks to the fullness of American experience. So with all of those disclaimers, it's still a tool that can help us understand ourselves and each other better. This particular <clears throat> generational theory holds that there are actually four generational types which repeat over and over again in cycles, right? So when we talk about the boomer generation or the Gen X generation, those are time-limited generations, but they fit within one of those four types. So that's this you know, this um, ages uh, version of one of the four archetypal generational types, which then will cycle back. Other nations appear to have those types as well, so that they continue to um, repeat. We have them now in a particular format, but the theory holds that the, the types existed before and that they'll exist again. In fact, people who are currently children, not yet in their teens, are, according to this model, going to become now the archetype currently filled by the oldest generation in America. So the, the silent generation is a particular archetype which will be repeated with now our children. They'll have a different name. They won't be the silent generation. They're often called the homeland generation. But they'll repeat some of the concepts and frameworks of the archetype that the silent generation holds. So I want to tell you a little bit about those generations. Um, so the first archetype is the adaptive or artist, and that's where the silent generation fits. The silent generation was born between 1925 and 1942, so just keep those in mind, see if you fit in there. They're currently 75 to 92 years old, um, and then older than that is a, a previous generation. The um, characteristics of that generation as children, they were wanted but often overprotected. They experienced hard times in childhood. Um, their life was um, protected but stark. It was black and white. They were kept in line, a parenting style that was really relatively tight. Um, they were good students in general who focused on details. In rising adulthood, when they were in their 20s, 30s, and early 40s, that generation lived life on a human scale. They married early in life to prove their maturity. They favored having options, different points of view, and were process-oriented. In midlife, when they were in their mid-40s, 50s, and 60s, the Civil Rights Movement was happening, the Women's Movement, the Americans with Disabilities Act, 
Divorce became increasingly common in America. Personal computers were introduced, and cars and companies were both downsized. They were, part, they were in midlife during the advent of many of our safety laws in America around airbags, child safety seats, bicycle helmets. They were known in that time as being counselors, mediators, fair-minded, and sensitive. Now that silent generation is in elderhood, which begins at 66. They're in general, so again, remember the, the flaws of this model, financially comfortable, generous. They are often anonymous donors, those in the silent generation. They travel frequently with grandchildren. A significant number with children have moved back home because of economic changes. They are seen as caring, empathic, and supportive. The next generational cohort is the, the archetype is idealist and prophet. That's currently expressed in the boomer generation, who were born between 1943 and 1960, and who are currently between 57 and 74 years old. So they are currently in midlife and moving into elderhood. Boomers in their youth um, experienced a looser parenting style than the silent generation. They were often indulged. They were encouraged to be independent, self-examining, and confident. And the schools during their youth were structured still, but also indulgent. The boomer years in high school saw both a tripling of students with all A's, so with straight A's, and at the same time, 17 straight years of declining SAT scores. So you can see sort of that experience of the boomers in um, adolescence in school. In rising adulthood, when they were in their 20s, 30s, and early 40s, they were seen as abstract and sequential thinkers, confidently opinionated. There was a stress on inter introspection and in inner meaning. We often think about boomers as the generation that did their searching to figure out who they were internally. And that was a real stress during that particular age time as well for boomers. They had narrow gender roles during that time that they were, um, you know, shuttled into by society. In midlife, ages 45 to 65, boomers um, were those who invented the 24-7 economy in America. They're seen as having really contributed to that idea of sort of living to work, work being the central part of life. They were seen in that time as noisy about their um, three Vs, and there's, many of them are still in midlife, still in this life stage, vision, values, and virtue. Um, and a belief that it was important to do the right thing, but that the right thing was my way, my understanding. As boomers move into elderhood, which starts around 66, they are seen as sages. They're considered wise and pious exemplars of morality and truth. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Probably because of all that introspection they did back in early adulthood. The next archetype is the nomad or reactive type. Uh, that's Generation X, born between 1961 and 1982. And I want to note that the, the years on generations, again, I'm using the Strauss-Howe model, the years on generations are different depending on what model you're using. And those of us who are on the edge often find ourselves feeling as though we have sort of an edge experience with our generation. We may not feel we fit in the one we're, we're called for here. But this was 1961 to 82. They're currently 35 to 56. So they're in adulthood. We often think of Gen Xers as being young adults, but of course time marches on. Um, and so really they're in adulthood and, and middle age at this point, Gen Xers. 
in their youth, um, Gen Xers experienced a high divorce rate among their parents. Many of them grew up with single parents or blended families. And um, the parenting style that Strauss and Howe describes is loose to the point of neglect. Um, <laughs> Gen Xers tended to be latchkey kids, um, and they had the highest youth um, and child suicide rates in 80 years, the Gen X generation. <clears throat> in rising adulthood in their 20s and early 40s, many Gen Xers are still in that life stage. They're seen as wary, skeptical, and survival-oriented. You can imagine after that child experience, right? Concrete and random thinkers. Kinetic and improvisational, risk-taking, and entrepreneurial. As they move into midlife, as many are, um, they're seen as protective of those who are younger and superb military leaders. However, they're also debt-laden and economically precarious. Um, they tend to be terse, blunt-spoken, street-smart, and savvy. Remember that this speaks to not just Gen Xers, but to that whole archetype that they're part of, the nomad reactive archetype. And so we can look forward and imagine what Gen Xers will experience in elderhood when that archetype becomes elders, 66 and older. They're not yet, right? Gen Xers aren't that old yet, but they will be soon. That type, nomad and reactive, tends to be influential, but not often respected, tougher than they are given credit for, with very widespread economic outcomes, so very different economic experiences. And then finally, we have the civic hero type currently expressed among millennials, which according to this model were born 1983 to 2004. Some models have it, um, have it earlier. Um, folks born from 77 forward, but here we have 83 to 2004. They're currently 13 to 34 years old, so they're in either their adolescence or their young adulthood, uh, millennials. They experienced as youth um, being celebrated as children. The parenting style started tightening up after the loose-to-the-point-of-neglect parenting that Gen Xers experienced, and they were taught the new three R's, rules, respect, and responsibility. In rising adulthood, as, which is the stage millennials are in right now for the most part, they tend to be cooperative. They are a we people. They're concrete, sequential reasoners, and they are hopeful and upbeat. As they move, in, move into midlife and elderhood, we can imagine that they will um, become more traditional and conventional and become institution builders and supporters. And that in elderhood, they'll be looking for peer-based living situations and busy with activities. So I want to just note that cusp generation piece. I am a cusp generation person myself. According to this model, I fit in the Gen X category. And according to other models, I fit in the millennial category, which is why I wear tunics with my leggings, neither dresses nor shirts. I can't, I can't go there. I'm just not millennial enough. Um, my cohort in particular, that cusp, is sometimes called the Oregon Trail generation based on a computer game that was popular um, during our sort of middle and high school years. Um, or we're called the Xennials um, in between the millennials and Gen Xers. So keep that in mind as you look at those cohorts. So why does all of this generational theory, all these different frameworks, right, that generations hold, why does it matter in a congregational setting? Well, communities like this one are one of the last places that are truly multi-generational. I want you to think about your friendship groups outside of Wes. Friendship groups that perhaps started when you were in college or in high school. Even those um, that you work with, the people in your workplace setting that you work with most closely. 
I suspect the majority of those groups are within your generation. They may be 5, 10, 15 years older or younger than you. They may be in different life stages, but they are probably roughly within the same generational cohort as you. And some congregations have basically single generational cohorts as well. It is not uncommon to find congregations where the entire congregation is primarily boomer or primarily Gen X. And in fact, some people design congregations that way, right? They will create congregations specifically to meet the needs of the Gen X population or the boomer population. Um, they're wearing Hawaiian shirts often. I think that's the boomers. Um, uh, where having a predominant culture that is generation-specific can work well for those communities because most people are from that generation. When I started at West about nine years ago, West was primarily a boomer and silent generation community. I was regularly the youngest person in the room. In fact, um, when I started the, um, working with officiants here, um, I tried to create a team that reflected diversity for me, and so I wanted to make sure there were people who were older than I and people who were people of color and men, right, all of those things. And it has occurred to me recently that I now need to have people who are younger than I, um, both because Wes has changed and also <clears throat> something's happened with me um, over those nine years. I'm not really clear what it is, but um, so we'll be looking for that. Um, but now, so now we have quite a variety of generational cohorts. In fact, I want to ask who we have in the room. So if you are part of the silent generation, raise your hand. Do you have any silent generation? Yeah, they come at 1130. <laughs> they, don't, they don't have to get up anymore in the morning. They're not interested. Um, do we have boomers in the room, though? I know we do, right? Yeah. Do we have Gen Xers in the room? And do we have millennials in the room? So when you look at that, right, we have more boomers and Gen Xers, but it's actually a, a pretty fair split between those three. And then we'll have the silent generation people arriving later. <laughs> so knowing that we, that we work with these different generations, you know, um, Programming is aimed differently for them. Different small groups are enjoyed by folks of different generations and with different frameworks. And of course, different communications work with different generations as well. That's often pointed to as sort of <laughs> Robin Kravitz, who works on our communications, is laughing to herself, as one of the key pieces for generational differences because technology has been such a shift over the years that all of these generations have experienced. Um, and you can see that at West as we've moved from monthly mailed newsletters to monthly emailed newsletters to weekly email briefs to Facebook posts and Twitter posts, which I'm too old to understand and don't do. But the biggest reason, I think, to care about generational theory, to care about the concept of being from different generations in the same community, is because we are a community that places relationship, how we are with each other, at the center of our lives together. And because for some of us, remember my disclaimer, it's not true for all of us, but for some of us, our generational experience, our framework for seeing the world is a defining part of our identity. It affects how we experience the world around us, how we experience conversation and relationship. And so if we want to know each other well, we need to know about that part of each other too. At West, we have um, different age groups, um, affinity groups that 
pull people together based on their generations, right? We have the young and thirsty group, which is generally millennials and younger Gen Xers. We have the still thirsty after all these years group, um, which tends to be boomers. Um, we have the aging with intention group, with, which includes boomers and folks from the silent generation. But we also find that people come to Wes not just for those generational cohorts, right? That, that may be a positive experience, but also because they specifically want to be in a community with people from many generations. In fact, interestingly, I hear that the most from young adults who come to this community, who come to me and say whether or not they participate in the young adult group here, who say that what they're looking for here is the chance to be with folks who are different ages, from different generations. And I can relate to that. When I was in college, I, um, I did some campus Unitarian Universalist work, but what I really loved was getting off campus to the local congregation. I had plenty of 18 to 21 year olds in my life when I was in college. I was hungry for the opportunity to be with people of different ages than myself in different life stages and with different frameworks. One of the challenges of generational community and also one of the gifts is that people in different life stages and from different generations have different ways of engaging with activism. Particularly right now as we're at a place where it feels that activism is called for on an almost daily basis, one of the things to be aware of in a community like ours is that we come from different generations with different ideas of tactics and approaches, even different language about how we talk about social justice and, um, and, uh, and oppression. And we have people with different abilities to engage, right? People who have young children at home, people who are not mobile. And, and one of the challenges is finding a way to make it possible for everyone to engage whatever life stage they're experiencing and whatever framework they come from. There's a gift in all of that as well. For those of us who are younger, getting to hear from people who have been through difficult times in this country before can offer us a window into survival. I find that I appreciate it both when folks who have been there before, who lived through the tumult of the 60s perhaps, can say to me, um, either that was bad, you know, th this is bad, but that was really bad too, and we made it through, and, and so that's good, and that feels reassuring. I find it sort of equally affirming when they say, no, that was bad, but this is worse. It really is that bad now, and okay, good, that's reassuring too. One of my colleagues shared that an 80-year-old man in a class that she held recently said that he has seen a lot over the years but has never seen the kind of resistance and civic activism we are witnessing right now. And that is reassuring. In this particular geographic area, I think there's a, a special enjoyment or um, um, beauty coming from being in a multi-generational community where so many of us are far away from family. I wonder how many of you have no, no extended family in the local DC area. Yeah, it's a lot, right? You know, no, you don't have your, uh, your aunts, your cousins, your grandparents, your grandchildren here in the area. And so I think that opportunity to create cross-generational relationships, which is especially missing for those of us in this more transient geographic area. I was at an auction party last night where the age range attending was from early 30s to early 80s. And um, 
I was so struck by how unusual that is in our life to have those kinds of social interactions that span a 50-year age difference and multiple generational cohorts. So we get in a community like this to learn about experiences different from ours in both directions, experiences we haven't had yet that may lie ahead and those we didn't have access to in our own young adulthood that we can learn about now. It all sounds so great, right? Who wouldn't want multi-generational community? What could possibly be challenging about it? Have you ever noticed that it can be hard to be with people who are different than you? It requires a little extra translation, a little extra learning. There's a reason why communities tend to be more homogenous. It takes one of the pressure points out of human relationship. This platform was requested really out of an experience, I think, of those pressure points. Generational theory tells us that it's not just age, life stage that's important, but, but the frameworks that our generation experiences. So that is the experience I have now as someone in my mid to late 30s, it's really late, isn't it, 30s, um, is different than the experience that someone now 70 had in their late 30s because we come from different cohorts, different frameworks. We see that all the time in the popular press. I don't know how many articles I have read about either lazy millennials or overly individualistic boomers or distance self-centered Gen Xers. You've read those articles too. The Gen Xers actually mostly just get sad, they get left out. It's usually the boomers versus the millennials and then the Gen Xers are just like, I don't know, off watching Reality Bites again, I guess. <laughs> All of those articles and those, those challenges are about struggling with fundamentally different frameworks for the world, where it can be hard to understand someone else's intention when the output doesn't mesh with your expected output. As I mentioned, in a lot of congregations today, the predominant group is boomers or silent. Um, and the challenge in those congregations is how to nurture new young leadership when the main culture is different generationally from young people coming in. The articles, actually, there's a section on Unitarian Universalist Association's website about generational work, and the articles really point to that reality for many generations. The, I just wanted to share the titles. Five Reasons Why Millennials Do Not Want to Be Pastors or Staff in Established Churches. Six Reasons Millennials Aren't at Your Church. The church's generational logjam is making everybody cranky. And then my favorite title, really the most uplifting, the church's doomed pursuit of the elusive young adult. <laughs> there are whole congregations that have simply said it's too hard. We're mostly boomers and silent generation. We can't bring in Gen Xers and millennials, and so we won't try. At WES, in our recent growth spurt, which has included new members in all age categories and all generational cohorts, but which has had the biggest percentage growth among Gen Xers and millennials, right? we are having a different conversation. We are having the experience not of trying to figure out how to nurture the one or two younger young adult leaders, but instead how to be a community with multiple different cultural expressions and experiences coming to the table. How to be a truly diverse, generationally diverse community. That means that people are bringing their own frameworks, their own inside jokes, their own cultural references, which the other folks don't get, right? on both sides, their own um, music that feels like home to them, 
and more importantly, their own understanding of what leadership should look like, how they want committees structured, what language they use when talking about social justice. We are lucky on staff to have three generations represented, millennial, Gen X, and boomer. And that helps with understanding multiple congregational perspectives. But I make it a point to regularly meet with those in the silent generation as well, trying to understand how congregational decisions, programming, communications work for people with different frameworks. And it's even a little more complicated in a community like Wes, where in addition to life stages and generational cohorts, we also have West generational cohorts, right? Folks who came to Wes at different times, whatever age they are, and so have different experiences and memories of what Wes was like when they first started. They came with different leaders when the building looked different, uh, when different programs and different traditions were expressed here. All of those affect our expectations for what our community will look like and how we will be together. <clears throat> I think the thing about generational theory that is the most helpful for me is that it invites us to look at those differences clearly, to, to look with intentionality at the different frameworks that they represent, and to imagine them as really being different cultures. I'm glad we have a member of our homeland generation with us here today. To imagine that just as we might bring our own languages, our own racial and ethnic identities with us, our own gender identities and sexual orientation, that our generational identity is another piece of culture, another part of who we are. And to bring that intentionality and awareness to our work together, to look it in the face rather than trying to erase the differences or go forward imagining that they aren't there. Getting to practice with generational differences, particularly in this community, also gives us practice with other differences, differences of language, race, and belief. Our diversity at West is probably greatest in our generational diversity right now, right? We are a majority white congregation still. We are a majority female, um, although that's not as significant. But our generational diversity is probably our most significant diversity. So it gives us an opportunity if we can move toward it as a real cultural difference among us to practice our cultural awareness and competency in other ways. My colleague Kimberly Debu gave a few tips which I wanted to share with you. She said for multi-generational communities, it's important to make space for alternative kinds of congregational involvement and not to assume what the other generation is seeking. To provide education in a variety of formats and to be generous in scheduling and childcare. To build leaders through task forces and short-term work groups. That's a reference in particular to Gen Xers and millennials who tend to not like long-term committee um, commitments, but rather to work on short-term projects um, that are action-oriented. And then she had messages. <clears throat> she had messages for the silent and boomer generations. She said, allow the, the younger generations, Gen Xers and millennials, to reinvent the process, which includes using new technologies. Don't assume that young adults don't want to lead just because they seem aloof. To the Gen Xers and millennials, she says, don't assume your voice isn't important. Respect, appreciate, and be open to the wisdom of elders. 
when I spoke with Rachel Hardig about this auction platform, about what it was she wanted me to get across, I think she said it best. There needs to be a quest for mutual understanding and respect between the younger and older in our community, she said, so that all come to realize that in the end, we are just individuals seeking and wanting to give love, young and old alike. If we are able to acknowledge and affirm our generational differences, to notice them, to talk about them openly the way we might any other part of our identities, we will be a stronger community for it. And I want to invite you today, as you go into your coffee hour, to find one person in a different generation than you and to ask them, do you feel you fit into your generational cohort? And what is a piece of wisdom you have about how you are in the world that you'd want to share with someone of a different generation? As Rachel says, our work is to remember that we are all seeking love together. Different frameworks, different ways of seeing it or building it or creating it but ultimately the same goal together. <laughs>